0: Welcome back to Jaffa Space, the podcast about food, farming, and environmental education. This season, we are sharing the recordings from the speaker series Acting for Change, Creating Justice, produced by Ekar Farm, an earth-based Jewish farm in Denver, Colorado. You can learn more about IKAR Farm at IKARfarm.org. This is also produced as a part of the Shemitah Project, an initiative committed to raising awareness about the Shemitah tradition in Judaism as a relevant commentary on contemporary issues. You can learn more about the Shemitah Project at shemitahproject.org. A link is available in the episode notes. This episode features co-hosts Hannah Perez-Postman and Adam Brock, and their guest speakers, René Millard-Chacon, the Youth Program Development Coordinator at Spirit of the Sun, and Lior Cockrell, who is an organizer with Jews on Oholone land. They discuss indigenous rights through the lens of Shemitah, and the command to return land to its ancestral owners in the Jubilee year. You will also hear what brought them to their work as activists and what we can all do to contribute to and organize for a more just society for everyone. Enjoy.
1: Hello everybody and welcome to Acting for Change, Creating Justice a Shemitah-inspired speaker series hosted by Ecar Farm in Denver. Um, This is a a six-part series, and this is part five, um, which is exploring the connections between ancient Jewish agricultural technology of Shemitah and contemporary movements for justice and liberation. Uh, We'd like to welcome, as always, the Rhythms for Change cohort in Denver as well as the cohort in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, organized by the Alliance for Earth and Land Justice. And welcome to everyone else who's joining us today from Colorado and around the country for this conversation. Uh, we also want to thank our technical partners at Hazone. Um, the recording of this conversation and all conversations in this series will be available at the Joffe Space podcast and also at ecarfarm.org backslash shmita, And you can find the Jaffe Space podcast wherever you download your podcasts. Um, Resources and discussion questions for this conversation and all of our conversations are available online um, at ecarfarm.org backslash Shemitah-resources. So every month we'll post resources and discussion questions that are related to the themes of the conversation for that month. Um, A couple of technical questions or uh, specifics, please keep your uh, voice muted and the screen on if possible because it is more engaging and please post your questions in the chat. So we will have some time for Q and A, but if any questions come up during the conversation, if you post them in the chat, um, myself or Adam, who is our conversation moderator for today will ask them as they come up. Um, and this conversation is uh, part five, and it is about Indigenous rights and land rights. And our guest speakers today are Renee Millard Chacon and Leora Cockrell. And before we begin our conversation and introduce our speakers more, we like to start with a landing acknowledgement. This one uh, is put together by Adam Brock and Perry Harding of the Pearlstone Retreat Center. We gather today virtually on stolen land, land that belongs to no one, but that was tended lovingly for thousands of years by Cheyenne, Ute, Arapaho, and the 48 tribes. We did not receive permission to be here and no amount of words can do justice to the suffering that those nations experience at the hands of European settlers. Today, we find ourselves in another moment of struggle Water protectors led by indigenous women in Minnesota are protecting the earth and communities blockading the building of the Line 3 tar sands pipeline and being arrested in the hundreds. The global pandemic is still very alive in many parts of the world. Extreme weather is ravaging the landscape and our democracy is in peril. And still the sun rises, the birds sing, the rain cools the parched soil and still love happens and is woven into the fabric of our days. We gather here today in the hope, always present that love can heal, that the traumas of the past and present can yet be overcome with compassionate learning, collaboration and graceful action. These words are a meaningful reminder of our present conditions. They are an offering and they are but just one step in the journey of acting in the name of justice and repair. May this humble gathering serve as a small movement towards remembering our true place in the dance of life, a small step on our long path back home. Um, We're gonna start with just a little overview of uh, Shemitah, which many of you who have been in these conversations for the past couple of months already know. Um, But for those of you who are joining, Shemitah is Jewish uh, ancient Jewish agricultural law that requires that the land is let to rest every seven years. So on the seventh year, all boundaries of agricultural land are dissolved and everyone is free to eat. All land becomes commons of which everyone is free to eat and share and grow um, and land ownership is suspended. It also is a year of releasing debt Um, So all debts that have been accrued up until that point are released and forgiven on the seventh year. Um, So it is a rest for the land and for the people. And um, Shemitah is a part of a nesting group of seven. So there's the seven days of the week on which Shabbat is the resting day, the seven years in which Shemitah is the resting year. And then the 49 years, so seven times seven is um, called the Jubilee year. And that is part of the microcosm of Shemitah and why I'm noting this in this conversation is because that is the time that feels most relevant to this conversation around Indigenous rights and land rights. Um, So according to the Jubilee proclamation on the on the 49th year, all land that has, is owned by you must return to the previous owner. So whoever owned the land 49 be- years before you is becomes the owner again. And so it's a release of land ownership and return to the original owners. Um, this was set up in uh, like ancient Jewish land uh, among the 12 tribes. And so our question is, how does this connect today? Um, And Adam, if you can run the slide, I don't know if already have. And so this is the quote from, from the Jubilee year text. You are to hollow the year, the 50th year, proclaiming freedom throughout the land and to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you. You are to return each man to his holding, each man to his clan, you are to return. And so again, this is a quote signaling the return of land to whomever, like the original owners. Um, And with that, I uh, would like to intro our speakers. We have two amazing speakers today, Renee Millard Chacon, who's the Youth Program Development Coordinator at Spirit of the Sun, She's a writer, educator, danzante Azteca, Chicana activist, and most importantly, the mother of two sons. She is an indigenous woman of Diné-Mexica descent, fighting for future generations and committed to relating climate justice to social justice. She has worked with the International Indigenous Youth Council, 350.org, 4 Winds American Indian Council of Denver, Women from the Mountain, and Earth Day Live 2020 in hosting, organizing, and leading marches, workshops, and educational resources for social justice and environmental justice. She welcomes any respectful correspondence to start doing the tedious but powerful work of creating better relations in spaces that deserve to be healed because of trauma from historical inequality and environmental racism. Our second speaker is Leora Cockrell. She is an organizer with Jews on Ohlone land Leora grew up in Wapumnes, Nisanan Miwok land in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains in Northern California. Leora received their bachelor's degree in sustainable agriculture and a minor in gender studies at UC Davis. Leora is now in the Masters of Social Change program at Star King School for the Ministry on Lishan Ohlone land, studying and working on right relationships with land and indigenous people as part of the diasporic Jewish community. Uh, So welcome, Leora and Renee. Thank you so much for joining us. And I will now turn it over to my co-fasilar Adam Brock, who will be be leading this conversation on Indigenous rights and its relationship to Shemitah and Jewish activist practice.
2: Thank you so much, Hannah, for that lovely introduction. Thank you, Renee and Leora, uh, for joining us as our honored guest today. And of course, everyone else who's listening in and, and uh, all of you who are joining us uh, today, feel free to keep this conversation going in the chat. Uh, tell us who you are, where you're coming in from, any questions you have uh, for these folks. We'll be keeping an eye on that. So I would love to start uh, with you, Renee, um, and maybe you telling us just a little bit about your own personal journey to this really sacred role you're now holding as kind of a a warrior for justice and peace for your communities. Um, Is that something that's always been part of your Animating Fire or how how has that evolved for you?
3: A heck of an introduction. And all the ones that came before and all the little ones to come. I pray for all those going through far more difficult times. May they find the strength, the support, the compassion, the food, the water, and the justice that they need to make it through. I find myself in these spaces because the system radicalized me. I am one of the disproportionately impacted communities as we define them now in the EJ bill. But in all honesty, I've seen all my life and I've been impacted in more ways than one of my family being choked out or flushed out in so many ways in Colorado in these homelands of the Cheyenne, the the Arapaho, the Mexica, the Lakota, the Kiowa, the Navajo. And I myself am the name, so Navajo Mexica. So I'm mixed Chicana from Denver homeland. So even in that space, I'm from New Mexico, Southern Colorado space, my family is. And I've seen for decades just water rights issues in that space in the San Luis Valley. And then now here in Commerce City, my husband, he served in the Navy for eight years. We saw redlining for eight years all around Naval bases too. This isn't just some Problem. The system isn't broken. It's working. It's designed. This is systemic violence. To understand that environmental violence, and then to look at ourselves without void of environmental violence and void of colonial violence. So the system radicalized me. I've been protesting and dancing as a mestizo dancer, so ballet folklorico now since I was about three. So Cesar Chavez Day marches since I was very small in Denver, Colorado, and then now I'm samadora, uh, a woman that holds the smoke and danza azteca and. Oftentimes, we're brought in protests in order to bring that awareness and that narrative for restorative justice. And what does that really look like when we talk about environmental justice? The reason that we do all this work is to restore, is to heal, is to clean and protect our land. And we see those that have not been doing it for generations, and we've been fighting for generations, what does that truly look like? And when our narratives have been erased and then our assets have been erased, it's really hard to stay on these fierce lands. So I've been working in every way that I can since we came back from the Navy to transformally educate, to interject this in school districts. What does this look like in environmental justice? We did work on the SB 200 bill in 1266, which was passed in Colorado, how to define disproportionately impacted communities, but most of all, how to heal them we need to have health and safety be just as important as economic benefit. And when we reanalyze that over and over, it has to come from a restorative, trauma-sensitive view to disproportionately impacted communities, starting with indigenous communities like
2: mine. Mm. Thank you so much, Renee. Yeah, there's there's a lot there that that I'm excited to, to unpack and weave together throughout uh, more of our conversation. Um, I'd like to briefly hand it it to you, Leora, and and kind of a similar question, you know, in your case, you, uh, in in Hannah's introduction, you know, she named that you're someone who organizes a group called Jews on Ohlone land. And I'm wondering what those two identities, uh, what's so important to you about the intersection of those two identities? As someone who identifies as a Jew, what is your journey journey towards uh, really, centering the importance of uh, the land that you're a settler on and and its ancestral inhabitants.
4: Thanks, Adam, for that question and honored to be here. Um, So my answer to that question is a bit meandering, but it begins with the fact that I was raised rurally and with very few other Jewish people. I didn't even really know that the Jewish world existed because of where I was raised. and so then later in life when i reconnected with judaism there's this tension um it's a it's a stereotype that jews live in cities and in my case it's very true in california and so i have this desire to merge these two this um this uh formative beginnings with a deep connection with land with my jewish community and Going deep into both of those, going deep into my Judaism and realizing that our creator gave us instructions for how to tend our ancient ancestral land. And I'm for now committed to living in diaspora. So how can I be deeply rooted in who I am and my people's ways? And also in deep awareness and acknowledgement that this is not my ancestral territory. I do not have instructions from my creator on how to tend this land and other people do. And that land needs to be returned to those people, and their sovereignty needs to be um, upheld and supported. So that if my people choose to stay here or are invited to stay here, that we cannot be appropriating indigenous culture, be firmly rooted in who we are, and also be really clear on um, that the the honourable stewards of this land are indigenous people. So. That's how I come to this is through more firmly rooting in I and who I am and my care for land. It's, it's an obvious to me that land should be returned to the people who are indigenous to the place.
2: Mm. Yeah. And that's actually a great, a great lead to, to something I'd like to ask either of you or both of you. I'd, I'd love to hear both of your perspectives on this, you know, like so much of our conversation today and especially related to Shemitah has to do with land and and how does land relate to the issues that you were raising Renee in in introducing your journey, right? So I'm curious to hear each of you talk about what what is your vision for justice as it relates to this land of Turtle Island and how First Nations and settlers would each play a role in that vision? Like what what does it look like in, in your sacred dream for land to be returned and for the, you know, hundreds of millions of people who are of European or African or Asian descent now living on Turtle Island? What What is their relationship in that vision as well?
3: I always tell people we're never going to go back to the way it was before because we've already damaged that. And to romanticize it or to assume indigeneity even is still there, it's not. We're very much still here and we're in the modern identity and we're still able to thrive the best we can here now so the best we can do is to remember to be mindful and to be restorative of the mixed identities that we all are of the colonized and colonizer and to accept that about ourselves because we won't be able to really understand what it means to have land back if we don't understand we have to relinquish privileges we need to go back to understanding our regional spaces, our regional medicines, our regional foods, and our regional people and why they honored that for the sacred spaces and reclaiming and renaming them to the sacred spaces that they were of the original people to. We work on campaigns at Spirit of the Sun here for um, renaming Mount Evans, Blue Sky Mountain to the Shine and Arapaho people, but in their tongue, because that was a ceremony land, but that specific mountain, one, Mount Evans is responsible for the Sand Creek Massacre, and two, that mountain was colonized by an extractive coal industry, it still is. And the one next to it is S Mountain, Squaw Mountain. So to rename that, Owl Woman Mountain, also to the Cheyenne and Arapaho name, because they're still here, but they're in Wind River in Wyoming and in Oklahoma. So they don't even have access to land. And any society that wants to understand equity analysis and restorative justice needs to know. What happened to those disproportionately impacted communities? Where are they now? And most of all, how can we bring again their self-determination from their perspective? Do not hijack their narrative, see where that harm is, see what has been done. And most of all, how can we lead a path from their self-determination to their self-sufficiency? We no longer want a seat at the table, we each want our own table, but we need to first remedy where there's been lack of accountability or protection to those communities to not even have space access to heal those lands. So the first thing that we do is bring attention to the soil at Spirits from the Sun. We literally talk about soil retention, mycelium projects. What does it look like to do the nitty gritty of every day of understanding that our soil is not the same as it once was in, in Colorado alone, which is a high desert plain? and to reanalyze that and to see spaces that are highly exploited for certain things, whether it's agriculture, whether it's livestock, whatever it may be, and understand systems aren't broken, they're working as designed. We've become predatory in how we handle a lot of our economy and handle how we handle a lot of our, our agriculture, a lot of our systems now, and to resent a lot of that privilege. to so know we're not always going to have the same access to water, so how can we have an ability to grow a certain amount of foods in certain regional spaces, to live within that consumption, and move on to other medicines, move on to other foods that can also supplement to better self-sufficiency. But ultimately, I am land back. I'm one of those that say we need to bring in assets for future generations to also steward that land in a responsible way. And we need to understand that cultural identity and cultural resilience and cultural education also has a lot that has been missed in the Western dominant narrative that has not been included in helping to be again, restorative, reclaiming and seeing those spaces again as sacred because my goal is eventually to also recognize rights of nature to be also as valid and protected as everything else, which would have to be in political and legislative levels as well, which are whole decolonized ideologies yet they were not quite there yet. Trying to bring in those type of of spaces so it's restorative justice equity analysis and eventually asset building for communities, disproportionately impacted communities from their self determination from what they've lost to their self sufficiency to give to the future generations.
2: So well rounded and clear. Um, And I I love that pathway that you laid out. And I I particularly want to appreciate that you name things like uh, rights to the land that, yeah, maybe not are practical in the moment. But if we don't, if you don't plant the seeds for us of that vision, it will never become practical. Um, So, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Leora, do you you have anything to share about? Uh, Any additions or or your personal vision for, for, from your perspective, what that looks like, Land Back?
4: Um, I think I just wanted to say that asking a settler that question is really complicated. And just wanted to bring forward the tension that the authors of Decolonization is Not a Metaphor really say that settler futures are not the priority. And that right now we're living in the imagination of settlers, we're living in the dreamed out future of settlers. Um, and I'd also add that Jonathan Cordero, who's Ramatush also says, this is your mess. It's not for indigenous people to clean up on their own. So I just wanted to bring that tension forward.
2: Yeah, yeah, I really feel that. Um, it, it is, it is such, a, such a complicated issue. And in, in some ways it's so simple, right? Like, it's, like you were saying, Renee, it's like, just respect the land and respect the people who, who treated that land as sacred for thousands of years and who now no longer have access to it. And, you know, in some cases, like, like these mountains that you named Renee, the the, the lands that are still sacred are now like named after people who were directly uh, perpetrating violence and and genocide on behalf of those people. So it's just like rubbing salt in the wound. Um, So it's like so simple, but then at the same time, it's like, we are all as you're saying again, Renee, like bound up in this, like, uh, colonial, like, hundreds of years of, of a colonial mindset, and we live amongst these laws and uh, ways of being that, that have been imposed, um, whether we want that or not, you know, and for, for me, like, the, the, the way this impacts me personally, one of the many ways is it's like, I, I'm a homeowner. Right, so I, according to the state, I own land. And, you know, the, even the decision to become a homeowner was was complicated for me. Um, but I wanted, I wanted to have the opportunity to treat land as sacred and to not, to know that it wouldn't be taken away from me. But at the same time, like I'm benefiting in all these ways that feel really icky to me, like in terms of like the value of that land growing without me having to do anything to it because of gentrification. And, and stuff like that and, and, and I'm saying all this to, to really presence what I imagine so many settlers who are trying to negotiate these, the, their own situations whether they own land or are renters or just wanting to, to do something in relationship to, uh, to wanting to honor land, honor the, the people whose land, uh, who stewarded this land for so many generations and just don't know like what what that looks like, um, so you know again I, I really honor what what you're saying, Leora, that this is not this is our mess to clean up, um, and so it's not for you necessarily, Renee or or other uh, First Nations or Indigenous folks to to tell us what we need to do. Um, so, with that though, I, I'm wondering if either of you have. Um, examples or stories of things you've witnessed or participated in that feel like one small part of that right relationship of restoring uh, those rights or that justice on, on kind of like a, an individual actionable level.
3: I'll read you a quote of sovereignty. <laughs> the sovereignty is the state of mind, sovereignty even in English tongue means to reign over. So I don't mean it that way, <laughs> I mean it as this. Sovereignty is a state of mind, or should I say a state of heart? It has more to do with how we conduct daily mundane actions than the heroic acts of war. Do we speak to our children in our native languages? What name leads us to the sacred? What rituals do we use to acknowledge our presence here? Tribal sovereignty is the ability to say who we are and what we are and to think for ourselves. It means the ability to run our own schools and move about in the world with dignity as our own nations. When it comes to home ownership, I'm a homeowner too. When it comes to home ownership, if you look at sovereignty in that way, the tree has as much right to live on that land as you do. That's sovereignty. The tree is a living being, has just as much access to the water and as much as you see on top of the tree is as much below the roots of the tree. So you have much as much responsibility to take care of those roots as much as you're taking care of the top of the tree. And the tree needs to have access to a better quality of life with land, air, water, everything that you do too. And if we conducted ourselves in communities like that alone, we'd help heal disproportionately impacted communities. If we conducted ourselves with the land, we'd help heal a lot of the land. And that's what it means to look at a lot of decolonial concepts in these spaces now. The system is designed to make you look at the economic benefit of your community first. And how is that going to benefit future generations? But it only benefits the current generations, and it only has and it always benefits those that are going to access that wealth easier for political gain. So we need to honestly see where those are no have never been represented in any form of health and benefit gain and where have they also been left out of economic benefits as well. And that does go to the land. And in indigenous concept our land is as much a nation and animals are as much a nation as we are. And to conduct ourselves in that way, if we want to look at transportation, animal roadways, if we want to look at energy, we should watch how we do our air conditioning, (laughs) and I know it's getting hotter, and even our heating, but in ways that self-sufficiency doesn't also mean predatory nature. And we have to analyze how we've been very predatory because of how we've all been colonized. I'm just as much a colonizer too. I still get my nails done. It's understanding this is an everyday way of life we have to apply to ourselves. And I always ask people first thing, how do you interact with your environment first thing in the morning? I taught my kids to, um, I have two sons, eight and 10. First thing I taught them is go outside. If it's a pretty day, please go outside. And most of all, drink a glass of water. I don't care, and say a prayer, say what your intentions are that day, say whatever you need and take that in with your first glass of water, first breath outside, and really understand that that's where you start is with that breath and with that water first before everything else really sets your day. And as little as they are, it's really helped them, especially through the pandemic that when they're having a hard day, I need a glass of water. And that's how they learn to kind of heal themselves. And it takes that slow healing of yourself and understanding your connections to relation to first creator, then your relations, and then your community in that way, every single day in that, in that fashion.
2: Mm, such simple but, but profound medicine. Thank you. Any other reflections from, from you, Laura? Laura, sorry.
4: Yeah, I think I'll probably talk about this more later, but just that with Jews on Ohlone land, our goal is for every single Jewish person who's not Lashon Ohlone to pay the voluntary land tax to the local Indigenous tribe. And so every year or every month, we get to renew that relationship with the local tribe and give money towards their urban Indigenous women-led land trust. So that's one thing that we do in the land of Huchin as Jews.
2: Yeah, I, I've, I've heard a little bit about that, that voluntary land tax and, and feel personally really inspired by that and would love to see something like that in, in our bioregion as well. Um, I wanna bring in a question uh, that Alan Katz asked in the chat. Um, I'm just gonna read what, what he wrote. I lead a Boulder, Colorado traditionally based Jewish study mindfulness group with ethical vision. Shemitah views people as stewards of the land with the, creator, with the creator being true owner of the land. Within the ideologies of indigenous people, what is there in alignment with that idea that people are stewards, not owners of the land? Renee, do you wanna maybe, if, if you have something to, to share in response to that?
3: I feel that it's aligned with a lot of um, concepts of community over competition. Hmm. understanding that in the long-term community doesn't mean just what the generations you feed now, but the past generation's knowledge, but the future generation's ability to also access that. And that we have a responsibility at this time to also know that when we work the land, to know the responsibility of letting the land rest and also relinquishing our privileges to it at that same time because it's also alive. And it's incredibly important to honor it at that time too, to rest, and that we don't have full access to it all the time, that future children will, that future generations need that that accessibility to thrive. So it's very much a life-giving ceremony to me, which we're actually about to have our life-giving ceremony next weekend here in Colorado for our way. And it feels very much in line with understanding responsibility has just as much to do with your self-discipline and your self-control as in a circle, knowing your strengths and weaknesses, knowing when you can step forward, but also knowing when you need to step back and hold the circle for your community. So really community over competition in the end and for the long-term.
2: Mm, nice. Hanoch, uh in the chat brings up kind of specifically the the connections like not just settlers in general, but but what what is it about Judaism and our history as Jewish people that might bring us into closer alignment and solidarity uh, with indigenous peoples in America? Maybe, Liora, this is a question you you might feel called to answer.
4: Sure, thanks for the question. Um, well, I think in a in a broad step back, I think it's the um, Ultimately, the responsibility of all folks who aren't indigenous to the lands where they are living to to the best of their ability reconnect to their ancient ancestral ways. And so, like all peoples, have the capacity to connect meaningfully to the people who are indigenous to where they live. And obviously, that's going to be unique and specific to whatever cultures we come from. Uh, so I don't think I don't think Jews are special <laughs> in this, but um, I do think that we certainly have our own not only our own ancestral land-based ways, but our own ancestral practices around relationships. So one thing that we really ground in at Duzan land is teshuva and broadening it from not just person to person or person to divine, but group to group and also repairing what our ancestors have done um, to the descendants of indigenous people and their ancestors. And so I think we have our own cultural repair practices that feel like vibrant and meaningful to me um and yeah there's a there's yeah i just think all groups have their own ways of interacting with earth um in in sustainable thriving ways and yes we have these cycles of release like shmita and yovel um that for me are more about releasing our um, ability to dominate, um, just like breaking the cycle of concentration of power that is like part of the um, struggle, the human struggle to break that cycle um, and may or may not be appropriate to project onto the land where we live now. Um, Yeah, those those are some of my thoughts.
2: Yeah, I, I really appreciate your invocation of teshuva, um, and I'm not sure if everybody on the call knows what teshuva is. So, could you maybe just define that a little bit and and share how that relates to to this context?
4: Sure. So, teshuva is a Jewish practice of relational repair. It's typically done at the new year or like leading up to the new year to kind of clean the slate. And the idea is that a a decent human has done equal harm and benefit in a year. Like it's not an it's not a, a perfection process, but that we um, take an accounting of and make amends for the places where we've done harm. And when it was harm between us and another human, we go directly to that human and ask for forgiveness. Um, whereas if it was between us and perhaps the more than human world, we might seek forgiveness from the divine or the more than human world and um and then like i said you can also think of it as like what have my people or my nation done that has caused harm and where can i ask for forgiveness on behalf of that group or even on behalf of my ancestors um so yeah it's um i think it's a beautiful practice um because it acknowledges that like we're gonna unfortunately create some amount of harm in our life and like, and we can be responsible for it and we can step towards it and step towards repairing it.
2: Awesome. Thank you, Leora. Yeah, I think that that additional context is is really useful for me and, and I'm sure it is for other people. So, um, Hannah named in the land acknowledgement, you know, this, this very specific campaign that is going on right now around line three and so many in, indigenous women putting their bodies on the line to protect their ancestral lands um, and also some, some European settlers and, and others uh, joining in, in solidarity to, to keep a pipeline uh, moving from moving tar sands from Canada through these, you know, gorgeous marshes and and lakes. So this is just one example in this, like, all too long history of, of struggles just to protect what is there. Um, you know, Renee, you named this campaign that, that I would love to, to hear a little bit more about to rename these mountains in Colorado. Um, so, you know, I, I really appreciated what you were saying earlier, Renee, about so much of, of this starts in, in our own lives and lifestyles and how we relate to the land around us and drinking water in the morning. Like that's just personally like music to my ears and, and really helpful. And I also want to ask if there's ways we can extend this struggle into the political realm. Um, maybe if, you know, not all of us might be ready to, to go to line three and, and tie ourselves to a boat and get arrested. Um, but like, for example, are there ways we can join in solidarity with this uh, campaign to, to rename Mount Evans and, and S-Mountain or or other kind of political struggles on the federal level that you all want to kind of name for us. Yes,
3: please. <laughs> I fight against Suncor, before Suncor was Suncor, they were Conoco. They have pr- contributed 35 particulate pollutions in South Platte River alone, which used to be called Moonshell River in Cheyenne and Arapaho Town. It also um, is responsible for benzene, hydrogen cyanide, hydrogen sulfide, which are fiercely dangerous carcinogen and chemicals that are released in Commerce City and ultimately the greater Denver area for at least 30 years. They have violated their permits so many times that the AQCC and the CDPHE honestly advocate for them when we used to fight for disproportionately impacted communities on testimonies. And now we're just now barely defining um, community monitoring, modeling and accountability in EJ bills. And this has honestly been a tar sands fight since at least the eighties, frankly. So Suncor is just the local space here in Colorado, but honestly know where there have been sacrifice zones in your spaces. They've probably been there for a very long time. They probably have already been developed by extractive industries before that and are just being highlighted by the next energy sector that comes in. So to be an ally and accomplice in these spaces, if you can't go to line three, though, though I do have family including my mother-in-law that has been at line three and that's helped with Honor the Earth there as well. Um, find those spaces where you can, if you can financially contribute, contribute honor the earth stopline3.org are legitimate ones that you can contribute today if you want to help in renaming, and reclaiming in helping redistribute the narrative to redistribute the wealth for local tribes it's clear creek county to support the renaming campaign and a lot of these are going national as well all states are noticing where there have been sacrifice zones over and over from predatory capitalism and what we mean by disproportionately impacted communities is this is being already affected by socioeconomic issues, but also your quality of life and health, health and access and safety being compromised as well. Do you have access to healthcare? In Commerce City alone, we've had school nurses removed in all of the spaces, including before the pandemic. And children in these spaces suffer from asthma, anemia, um, low birth rates, low birth weights when they're born and long-term cancer. And for many generations, including uh, activists locally here named Lucy Molina, understanding where you can help fight in those spaces, join those city council meetings, come to those testimony spaces. If you wanna really protest, it's not just on the streets, it's literally in representation of these communities, but never hijack their narrative. Learn where the data has harmed those communities because in all honesty, you're next. And it is performing like that because it's those that can be predatory, they first see who they can be predatory on the weakest first. And in any garden, if you wanna help, really help the garden, go to the weakest first and help those communities with their needs because if it's already a stronger community, they'll grow stronger too, just like in a garden. So be very mindful of the communities you're going to and understand ally and accomplice work We also offer that at Spirit of the Sun too, because we do so much in all of these realms from farms to food share, to just environmental justice legislation, to youth, to elders, to truly bringing in a lot of our cultural identity too. And I ask that when you go to these spaces, learn where you can first listen and step back to what the needs are. But to be an accomplice means to sacrifice platforms, to relinquish assets, and to help support in those communities. So see where you can help in those spaces too. If you can't go to line three, find where that dirty tar sands is in your space because I promise it is. And know where you can honestly heal your space from particulate pollution. If it is just garden gardening, garden, learn to heal the soil too, just the same. So there's a plethora of ways that you can be an ally and accomplice. but I ask that you always try to center to the homelands that you're in because we are still here. And I don't wanna speak monolithic of any indigenous community. I'm just one that can dismantle. There are so many that are there. And especially at line three, I believe it was mainly allies and accomplices that got arrested this last one. I think it's 250 in total. And my sister-in-law, Micaela, who helped start Women from the Mountain with me. And she's also won a Human Rights Award for International Indigenous Youth Council Standing Rock. Um, She went down there already. And she said that there's a lot of allies and accomplices this time. But notice also the political push. Stop Line 3 started under Trump. There were no arrests, even under Trump. But he also seems to not have as much as a financial or fiscal um, Investment in that space. But we've noticed since Biden has stepped in, there's been a lot more just harmful practices to the communities that are protesting in those spaces. And it is start looking into those banks that are investing in those spaces and divest. Wells Fargo is contributing directly to Line Three, divest in Wells Fargo. We've actually held a uh, missing and murdered indigenous protest in front of a Wells Fargo here in Denver, Colorado. So again, know where those. Spaces are to um, divest as well. Para, if you're an educator, is also investing in line three. So divest in in spaces like that if you really want to help for the long-term because that's where it really hits a lot of these spaces before you even have to stop at the protest pipeline is seeing where it really hurts their fiscal development and why they're even being predatory in those spaces at all.
2: Mm, Really great advice. I, I just want to clarify a couple terms for folks that might not, not know them. Um, Suncor is an oil refinery, right? Like located in, in Commerce City. Um, and uh, I think it's like the only oil refinery in, in Colorado and it's super polluting and toxic and, um, and, and the state has kind of bent over backwards to accommodate them even after time after time they've, they've violated the amount of pollutants that they're legally allowed to, to emit. And then uh, Para is what—that's the the state pension program for teachers. Is that right? Yeah. Cool.
3: Yeah, we've already got all the letters and appeal to all Para, and I'm even a Para member because I'm also an educator too. (laughs) And they still tell me economic (laughs) benefits outweigh the public health and safety, even in a letter. So they'll tell you to your face how much economic benefits outweigh, and that's where—if that's the case—health and safety benefits need to be just as valid
2: mm mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, Leora, anything you want to share in, in addition to that? Um, any other tips from, from your work as an ally or accomplice?
4: It's not on a federal level, but I think it has federal consequences. And so I just wanted to uplift that Segurite, which is the Urban Women Indigenous Land Trust, is really working to save the West Berkeley Shell Mound, which is the last of 400 sacred ancestral burial sites to not be developed on. Currently has a parking lot on it, um, which the spokesperson for the LaShawn Maloney people says is kind of a twisted um, blessing because they haven't, because the parking lot is just this deep, they haven't dug into and disturbed the ancestors, but developers just got approval to build on it. Um, And so shellman.org is the place to so show your support financially if you can, and um, it's been recognized as a historic site, um, and they're going to take it to the California Supreme State Court level, so just wanted to uplift that local um, issue in the land of Fuchin.
2: Actually, while, while you're on the topic, Lura, do you mind sharing a little bit more about the Segorite Land Trust and that model, because I think that's a a really powerful model for for communities around the country, Uh, not not necessarily to just adopt, but to maybe use as inspiration.
4: Yeah, great. Um, So it's one of our principles in JUUL to not speak for indigenous people. So I'm going to give you just like enough information so that you can go find out more for yourself. Um, But uh, in Huchin, which um, in colonial terms is the East Bay of San Francisco, it's the territory of the LaShawnalone people. And because they're not federally recognized, they don't have access to their ancestral homeland. So the creative um, like make it work solution that Karina Gould, who's a tribal spokesperson came up with is urban land trust. So to buy back her people's ancestral territory at Bay area market rates and turn it into urban um, land trust to take it off the speculative market. And so, um, Shaumi, which is the, um, voluntary land tax is one funnel of resources that's, um, supporting Segorate. So I recommend going to their website, Sagorate.org, uh, And then they have a information on Shaumi, and they've pre-calculated based on whether or not you're a renter or an owner, an individual or an institution, how much Xiaomi you should pay. And it's honestly pretty low and generous. So like, the invitation is to give more than the bare minimum. Um, and that is the org- is the organization that Jews on Ohlone land is in direct accountability and solidarity with through decades long relationship with Jules uh, founders.
2: Thank you so much. Well, we are getting towards the, the end of our time together. It went by so quick. Um, if anybody in the uh, watching uh, live wants to put in any kind of last minute questions, we, we might have time for one or two. But in the meantime, uh, I just want to open it up to, to each one of you one more time, Leora and Renee, to just kind of share any, any thoughts that have come up for you, any questions you might have for each other, um, anything that you want to make sure we leave with as we start to kind of bring this conversation uh, to a landing.
3: I always tell people be gentle with ourselves as we kind of decolonize because we're also learning where we've been colonized or harmed by ourselves too. So be very trauma sensitive to yourself as you're moving forward. But one thing I always ask is when you go into BIPOC spaces, indigenous spaces, is first come as an ally. Come to listen, come to heal, come to help support. Mm-hmm. and then move as an accomplice understand where we can help support each other in a circle i constantly say community over competition at this point mm-hmm. there is no one savior <laughs> is gonna save any of us if all of us are gonna have to really relinquish our privileges now and understanding what it really means to be responsible for future generations where past generations have honestly preyed on our resources mm-hmm. and start looking at your resources as sources of life They are legitimately sources of life it's the way that tribes have seen them as sacred and why renaming and reclaiming spaces to the tribe's tongue is incredibly important to heal these spaces as well so be gentle with yourselves because it's going to be a lot of work and it's a lot of internal work actually and a lot of conflict resolution believe it or not i deal with a lot of
2: a lot of
3: Yes, a lot of cleaning and protecting, (laughs) as Mm -hmm. I say. Mm -hmm. So any way that we can relate back to not any one of us being superior, but Mm -hmm. realizing that we also need to start incorporating the rights of nature moving forward to to really have their own say and their own self-determination as well is what I'm... I'm trying to go forward with when I talk about equity and analysis because quality before we really get there has to be based on a real foundation of equity. Mm -hmm. And that does mean also assessing where there's been immorality in a lot of our systems and where we can heal them with a lot of our cultural resilience
2: quick uh, follow-up question, Renee. Lizzie on our call asked, is there a similar land trust in the Denver or Colorado area to what Lior was describing uh, in Segorite?
3: I believe there's a Montezuma land trust in southern Colorado that has right. been working with tribes to try to build little by little, but none in the Denver area. And we've been trying for a really long time. And We work with several farms, all different mm-hmm sister's farms, masa farms, eco farms all different types, emerald farms, and we're trying to honestly show that gentrification is real for indigenous communities. Colorado only has two reservations and they're in the southern area. So for the 48 tribes that still traveled the year and are tribally affiliated, we literally don't have access to our own land and property, even in the Denver area to perform a lot of these programs for our youth and elders or to maintain even food shares. So what does it look like to help us in gentrified spaces in understanding land back and property and a lot of these land trusts would be incredibly helpful and to bring to, from Leora that type of connection and bridging here in Colorado
2: would be healing as well. Mm, that's that great. trust. Cool. And then Leora, uh, you know, Hannah, Hannah put in the chat uh, a question, which you can choose to answer as weave into part of your maybe final thoughts. Um, she says, "I'm curious about your understanding of the appropriateness or inappropriateness of applying the Shemitah framework to contemporary life as diasporic Jews on Turtle Island." You mentioned it briefly, and I would love to hear more.
4: Great, thank you. Um, first, I just want to say I really resonate and appreciate with what Renee said about moving slowly and being trauma-informed and doing the work internally. And we get a lot of questions about like, Jewel's so great. How do we make that happen where we live? And it is important to move resources and to be tangible and to have material things happening in the world. And when we lead our workshops with majority white Jews, there's a really strong narrative of, but my people haven't been safe anywhere for centuries. And now you're telling me it's, I'm on stolen land, like the, the, the psychological, emotional traumatic grappling that needs to happen in order to get Jews on board with accepting that we're guests and that we're not entitled to live here is big. It's deep. And that work can start tomorrow. So, um, I just want to say that there, there's definitely parallel tracks of materially returning resources and internally healing our traumas that we carry that block us from being able to show up in a good way. And um, to Hannah's question, I think that the, the like the bells that go off in my head about thinking about applying Shemitah or really any Jewish um, ancestral practice on this land is that when this land was settled by predominantly Christians, they called Turtle Island to Zion. They had a religious framework justifying stealing this land from indigenous people in their minds. So whenever folks who are not indigenous to here are thinking about applying religious frameworks to this land and projecting onto it, it just gives me a little like freak out goosebumps. Um, And so just like, just being mindful about the difference between rooting in who we are and then projecting that onto the land we're not indigenous to if we're not indigenous to it. So thanks for the question.
2: Mm, Thanks for that. Really, really intelligent uh, and wise word of caution. All right, y'all. Well, this has been such uh, an incredible conversation. I'm so grateful to to both of you, and I feel like your perspectives complemented each other so well. Um, I know, speaking for our kind of cohort um, that is uh, working with ECAR Farm, um, this is an issue that we're really passionate about. So we really hope to stay in relationship with with both of you as we move forward and and figuring out what our actions look like. but in the meantime, thank you both for, uh, for your great work. Thanks to everybody watching live. Thanks to everybody listening on the podcast. I hope you all found something useful in this conversation. And um, for our Rhythms of Change folks, we will reconvene um, at 1110.